Hey everybody, you're listening to Canary Cry Radio, and my name is Basil. And this is Gons. This is episode 136 in continuation of 135. That's right. This is part two of my conversation with Ryan Bundy, current candidate for governor of Nevada. And we want to jump right into the second half of this conversation. I will say, if this is uh, your first episode of Canary Cry Radio or you have not listened to episode 135, that is the first half of this conversation. You are definitely going to want to stop this, go back into the list and listen to episode 135, part one of this conversation with Ryan Bundy. Uh, It's very important you do that. If you don't do that, none of what follows will make any sense. Um, (laughs) (laughs) uh, But just real quick, if you want to support this show, head over to patreon.com slash canarycryradio. This show is exclusively supported by listeners like you. We have made a decision to eschew the traditional form of podcast monetization. We do not believe in selling your attention for our personal gain. But that means that we can only be supported by listeners who believe in this project and who value the types of stories that we are telling in episodes like this. So head over to patreon.com slash canarycryradio where you can get bonus episodes and all sorts of rewards for helping keeping this show going. Yes. And we also hit our first goal of a hundred patrons. And so uh, we're excited about that. And because we hit that first goal, we have a very special bonus episode that we are currently preparing for those Patreon supporters. But if you are unable to support the show in a financial way, one great way to support the show is to go ahead and tell a friend, share this show, spread the word. And you can also do that by leaving a rating and a review on iTunes, Stitcher, or whatever podcatcher you listen to this show on. Yeah, and it really does help. And we really appreciate it. You know, the positive, the negative, we'll take it all. So one more thing I wanted to mention before we jump in, Canary Cry News Talk. It's a half hour a week where we basically touch on a couple stories that we thought were relevant to everything that we discuss here and hopefully add something a little bit different to round out your news consumption. And do make sure to go to canarycrynewstalk.com where you will find an aggregate, a list of links of relevant stories for the week. Enough of that. Now it's time to get into the second half of my conversation with gubernatorial candidate Ryan Bundy. This is Canary Cry Radio. And so they started gathering cattle on Saturday the 8th of uh, April, 2014. Wherein they had helicopters in the air, they had the contract cowboys around, they had placed up corrals, you know, portable corrals on our ranch, and they started to to round up our cattle. And uh, again, we didn't do anything. You know, my father said, no, don't do anything. Don't do anything. Just wait and they'll get their hands dirty. And so that's all we did. He just said, take pictures, just watch, don't engage. Okay. I was, you know, nervous as a cat on a tin roof. You know, we wanted to do something. We were trying to, you know, what should we do? What should we do? Dad says, don't do anything. And so the next day, Sunday, um, we noticed that they had gathered a bunch of cattle up at a place called Sheep Trust. And the Sheep Trust, there's a dirt road that comes directly north down off the mountain and joins with uh, uh, State Route 170 
which then they can either turn left or right to go into Mesquite or down across the Riverside Bridge, then up to I-15 and, and go to the compound they had put together. So we stopped there after we had been to church that Sunday and we're just going to film and watch, just witness, witness them bringing the cattle down and document it through, you know, filming. And at first of all, there was just one BLM truck there with, you know, a guard. They had it. That's the other thing. They had the whole area shut down and every road, every dirt road that come that went up into the range, they had, you know, a guard and a truck there and a couple men there. And uh, and and so they had the whole area closed off. So there was this one guard there. And so we were just sitting there at the road, just waiting. And of course, he calls in, oh, you know, there's somebody here, somebody watching, whatever. I don't know what he said. But before long, they started to congregate and they ended up having 14 different trucks there with multiple people in them. One uh, suburban uh, type vehicle drove up on top of the hill and five men got out. Uh, there was two sniper teams and then a driver. Those two sniper teams set up. There were several of us down on the road, by the way. My brother and a friend and a couple other people were there. And again, we're there just to witness. And so one sniper team set up over my brother and the other one set up over me. And I had my wife and children with me. And the, that sniper uh, and, and his spotter pointed their rifles directly at us. And I was able to, with binoculars, look directly down his rifle scope as he was pointing at me. Then, uh, then they ordered us to, to leave and we're citing this federal code and that federal code. And we had broken no laws and we had done nothing more than park on the side of the road like anyone is, is, is free to do. But they were trying to force us to leave and of course then they claimed that we were interfering with the court order and their you know interruption of the due administration of justice and of course and stuff. But all we were there to do is just take pictures. Um, my brother Dave um, was outside of his vehicle and just kind of leaning against his hood with his iPad and was filming the event. So they went up to him, a whole bunch of them, and an attack dog, and they threw him to the ground and rubbed his face into the, the gravel. They, once they had him down, face down, then the guy put his knee right on his face, pressing it the other side into the gravel and, and rubbed. And all the time I was there and they were hollering at me saying they were gonna jump in my vehicle and jerk me out. And uh, of course I had the sniper on me watch, watching the whole time too. So because my dad had told us not to engage and I knew that there was no way I could help my brother in that position, I, I, I did finally drive away. Now they took him and threw him in the truck and paraded him around the compound like he was a trophy deer. And they all gawked at him and everybody, you know, it's interesting, the BLM personnel in the vehicle behind me who was all excited about uh, being able to engage us. Of course, I didn't learn this until I was incarcerated and, you know, so years later, but I was able to watch his camera footage from inside his cab. And he was just eager, so eager to engage. And when he finally got approval to engage, you know, he's like, ha ha, and he racked his gun, cocked it, made sure the bullet was in it, 
And then he gets out of his vehicle and comes and engages mine. I mean, it was an excitement for them. They were eager and excited to engage and to, to attack us, is what their mentality was. And, uh, you know, as kind of jumping ahead a little bit, but to show you again uh, some footage that we were able to view when they were driving out. You know, they made statements as, all talk. Now this is kind of quoting some BLM guys. We didn't fire one effing bullet. We should have killed them all. I mean, these are statements made by BLM people as they are leaving the compound. We didn't fire one effing shot, they said. They're all hyped up. Oh, yeah. Yeah. You know, and now the courts and the prosecution wants to claim that they were the victims. And yet this is their mentality when they were leaving, that they were disappointed that they didn't get to shoot us. You know, oh, oh and by the way, I, I forgot to mention that just prior to that, just hours prior to that, it was confirmed that they had, they didn't have any arresting power. They didn't have any authority to arrest. And yet here they captured my brother and supposedly arrested him. And now they're parading him around and then they haul him to Vegas and they book him into the detention center there in, in Henderson. Uh, they interrogate him and they keep him overnight. And then they haul him to the federal courthouse and then back to the, the jail and then they just kick him loose. They just put him through the system just to say they could or put him uh, on You know, record? I don't know. Yeah. You know, I mean, there was, there's no citation. There's been no court proceedings following that. There's been nothing. I mean, what would you get him for anyways? He just was standing there with an iPad. Well, that's exactly the case. But yeah. see, they, they, they violated his rights. They took his liberty. They battered and, you know, did, you know, assaulted and battered him. And for what? You know, where, what crime had he committed? Nothing. He had done no harm to anybody else. He was simply standing there exercising his First Amendment right and to be able to sit there and film. That was yeah. it. Okay. But of course, their accusations are is that they're to engage and do harm and, you know, but that's all just trumped up false accusations. So again, we did nothing, but, uh, and we didn't get that on film very well. You know, uh, my daughters, uh, you know, who are just, you know, young teenagers, you know, I asked them to film on the, on their phones, but they were so nervous and everything, it didn't, didn't get done. So, uh, but anyway, still the story went out and it started to awaken the American people. And they started to say, wait, what, what's going on here? Now, um, the other elements that were taking place was they were planning on taking our cattle out of the state of Nevada and into Utah to be sold at a livestock auction there. Now, the way livestock auctions work is that a livestock auctioneer will earn a commission off of all the sales that go through his barn. You know, and that commission's, you know, small 3% or something, you know, or maybe even less. And yet, the Bureau of Land Management had contracted with this specific sale barn and had paid him like a $300,000 in advance so that they would sell our cattle there. Yeah, because I'm sure there's some moral qualms if the, the auction house really knew what was going on, but it's easy to turn a blind eye when you got 300 grand in the bank. And he did really know what's going on, but he uh, he was sold out, no doubt. Okay, so now you know there's a lot of legalities that are involved with that whole process because 
you know, the cattle belong to us. And rightfully, they can't be, you know, leave the state without a brand inspection. And the brand inspection has to be signed by the owner. Okay, so how are they going to take these cattle from Nevada through the tip of Arizona into Utah without a brand inspection? So now we get Nevada State brand inspectors involved. And the Nevada State brand inspectors is aiding and abetting in this cattle wrestling program to allow uh, our cattle to be, be wrestled from us. Okay, so I wanted uh, Utah State to be involved too, and Arizona. So I first of all went to the check-in station, Arizona-Utah line, and questioned them about cattle that might have already come through or any other cattle that would be coming through, and demanded that, because uh, by the way, uh, any livestock must stop at the checking station for an inspection. Right. Okay. And so I, first of all, made sure that this would take place and demanded that it would. I also contacted the Utah State Brand Inspector and um, and let them know that there's a problem here and there's cattle rustling going on. I went to the Sevier County Sheriff, which is the county in which the livestock auction is, and I met with the sheriff and I informed him of what was going on, and that I expected our cattle, you know, not to go through that sale, uh, and that if they did show up at that sale barn, that I would be taking possession of them, and um, and that I expected his assistance in in doing so. And so then we had we had uh, um, we had previously the week before protested the sale barn for uh, you know accepting such a contract from the BLM. I mean, there's obviously, obviously dirty work going on. Yeah. Okay. And so now we're, the, the sale is on Tuesday. And so back to, back to Riverside and the ranch and the gather, they continued to gather through Monday. And then on Tuesday, I went, uh, back up to Utah to protest the sale bar. Now, while I was gone, uh, they brought another entourage off the range. Now, this entourage, uh, I don't know, there's about 14 vehicles, but it included backhoes and dump trucks. And so we're like, wait a second, what does a backhoe and dump truck have to do with a cattle gather? Yeah. I mean, th there had already been so many weird occurrences as far as militarized vehicles, and uh, you get some construction equipment coming in that's not a good sign and uh you know even considering the court order that they supposedly were enforcing and it only gave them authority to gather the cattle nothing else so again what is a backhoe and dump truck doing with involved here and so they wondered you know are they killing the cattle and they're filling the dump truck full of dead cattle Anyway, they needed to know. So uh, a bunch of the people went down there to, you know, to protest and to see what they could figure out what was in the dump truck. And, of course, the BLM entourage would not stop. And so my brother drove his four-wheeler in front of the dump truck to bring it to a stop. The dump truck actually hit his four-wheeler, did some damage to it, but it did bring it to a stop. And so, of course, the BLM agents, they all jumped out and attacked, and they tased my brother three times, actually. He never did go down. 
they sicked an attack dog on him and he kicked the dog and that dog turned around didn't want anything to do with him the people were gathered around there one of the blm agents uh, grabbed my aunt who is 57 years old and just recently survived cancer treatment and chucked her to the ground crazy. Now all of this was caught on video and particularly Pete Santelli's video and he was live streaming I do believe. And that video reached a million views faster than any other video in the history of internet. Wow. People were watching and people could see the atrocities that was going on. They could see the BLM getting their hands dirty and they remembered Waco and Ruby Ridge and they remembered you know, and, and the, the American people was not going to put up with it. They, they said no more. And so after that, people began to arrive in droves by the hundreds. And, uh, and so it got very big very fast in the next few days. It had to feel good to have all that support. It did, because, you know, before we were just lone ranchers out here and we were on our own and we had a military entourage on top of us and, and willing and ready to kill us. And, and so, yeah, people showing up started to ease the stress from off us a great bit. Wow. Anyway, back to the dump truck, my brother was able to jump up into the back of the dump truck and see what was there. And what was there surprised and startled us because it was our infrastructure for our waters and our water troughs. Oh, they were dismantling your, the water for your cattle. Yeah. They were taking away sure. the whole thing to make it viable. Yeah, and they had... They had uh, I mean, that was even way beyond their court order, supposedly. Digging up pipes. They'd actually taken one of our, uh, we had a 10,000 or 12,000 gallon water storage tank and a trough and, and water lines feeding that tank. Beautiful setup. And they had taken a cutting torch and torched that tank into pieces. Oh my gosh. And jerked out the water trough with tobacco and pulled up the water lines. And that was just one. They actually had numerous locations. They actually had a convoy of, I think, five dump trucks and backhoes that they were going to go out and destroy our entire ranch. Uh, this was the only one they actually accomplished. But that was their goal, was to destroy, destroy us all. Take out our corrals, take out our fences, take out our waters. They were going to completely dismantle our ranch. That's crazy. So That's, I mean... <laughs> I mean, now they're just running free with whatever they want to do. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, so the American people would not put up with this. They saw the First Amendment zones. They saw the abuse to my brother, Dave. They saw the abuse to my aunt. They saw that they were tearing and destroying our water rights. They saw that they were attacking us with this military-type force. We talked about the, the snipers, and they knew about the snipers. We had photographs of them. Um, and, and American people said, no, this is not happening. And so they started to come. Now, uh, the, the, they continued to gather cattle for a few days while the people began 
to accumulate. We literally had thousands of people there. And because of that, this started to make the BLM nervous. The sheriff finally decided to get back involved. And somehow, I don't know exactly what took place behind scenes, but somewhere along the line, it was determined that the roundup was going to stop. And the BLM put out the announcement through the sheriff that the roundup was suspended. We found out later, again, there's a lot of stuff we found out when we were in the courts and the trials about what really was taking place. They had no intention to stop the roundup completely. They were simply going to back off, let the people all disperse, think that they won, and then they were going to restart the roundup in a few days. Was there a feeling at the time, before you learned everything later, was there a feeling at the time that maybe you had won, that maybe you had pulled it off? Well, you know, uh, yes, there was great cheers from the people. But then the people asked, well, what about the cows? And, uh, you know, the, this, by the way, was Saturday morning, and the county sheriff was there on the stage with my dad. And so, you know, the county sheriff said, well, you know, anyway, he kind of hum-hold around about the cows a little bit, but mentioned that, you know, there needed to be safety involved with the cows. And, and anyway, my dad uh, never did ask for his cows back. But what he did ask the sheriff was for the sheriff to disarm the BLM. Yeah. Okay, because here we have a standing army, a federal force that is down in the states, unconstitutional, and they're, you know, they're pointing these guns at, at the people. And this was not right. So we asked the sheriff to disarm the BLM and bring the guns down to the flags and the stage where we were at, place them there. And he gave the sheriff one hour to accomplish this task. So, you know, all the people there, we, we waited an hour, and the sheriff didn't return. And so my dad asked me, well, what do you, what do you want to do? And we decided, well, we'll wait another 15 minutes. So we waited another 15 minutes, and again, the sheriff never returned. So then he, uh, he asked the people, what, do you, what are we going to do? And they said, let's go get the cattle. He's all right. Get her done. And so the people all headed up to where the compound was. And um, the horsemen rode cross-country, which is about a three-mile ride. And the rest of us got in, you know, vehicles, and it was about a six-mile ride by vehicle. Um, but we went up to I-15, drove down to the Toquap Bridge, where I-15 travels over Toquap. The interstate was shut down, mostly, slowed way down for safety, mostly. And people were getting off and parking and accumulating, and they ended up going down underneath the bridge. Now, the BLM, even after being told by the sheriff that they had suspended the roundup, a lot of the people expected the BLM to be gone. But they weren't gone. What they had done is they had um, went and got all their battle gear on and created uh, battle lines and funnels into kill zones and, and they had all and put snipers on the hills around and they were they were geared up to do battle. And here we have a bunch of people, women and children, unarmed men on horses, down underneath the bridge, facing this military type force. Now there were a few men with guns and they were mostly up on top of the bridge. But the people down underneath the bridge didn't even realize that there were men up on top of the bridge with guns. Yeah. 
So the ones down underneath believed that they were facing the BLM without anything. Just citizens standing their ground. That's right. The BLM people were eager to kill. And they had authority from their uppers, supposedly, to use lethal force if necessary. And they had announced on their loudspeaker that they would shoot and use lethal force if we didn't disperse. And yet nobody took a step back. Everybody kept stepping forward. The BLM people, again, a lot of this we learned later through listening to their dash cams and body cams and radio chatter and so forth, that, that they, were, they were eager to kill. They had, um, you know, at one point, one guy was saying, talking to another, and he goes, you're my lethal. In other words, I'm going to advance, and you're going to back me up, make sure that, you know, that I'm taken care of. They're tactical strategizing. Oh, yeah. They were all geared up. This was a, this was a battle plan. This was a battle plan. Uh, the other thing point I'd like to point out was this was taking place not on supposed BLM ground, which... Again, there is no such thing, according to Constitution and all. We talked about that, I think, earlier. But this is actually taking place underneath the bridges of I-15, Interstate 15, which that land belongs to the Nevada Department of Transportation, Interstate. So the BLM is way outside of their jurisdiction or in authority. Mm-hmm. There was no trespassing going on. There was no, you know, there, there were, they had no authority to close land that belonged to, you know, Nevada. They had also set up the First Amendment zones. I mean, how ridiculous can it be? I know we spoke about that at Lake earlier. But, you know, the American people were just not going to have it. And I want to talk about Greg Burleson, Todd Engel, and Eric Parker, and Scott Drexler, and a few of those others who were men who brought guns and they were men who set up on top of the bridge and they weren't there to shoot federal agents or to you know, you know impede a federal officer in his duties or to you know prevent court orders from being exercised but they were there to protect the people they were there to ensure that no one was harmed these men are heroes they are heroes, and they deserve medals of honor for their bravery and what they did. I also want to talk about being up on top of that bridge for a minute, because I was up there for a little while. And when I was there, Sheriff's Deputy Brent Empey drove up. And I know Brent. And so when he drove up, he rolled down his window, and I leaned on the window, and I said, I said, Brent, I want you to know that we're not the aggressors here. He says, I know that. And I said, and no harm's been done. And he said, oh, yes, there has been. And I said, not by us. And he, go, and he agreed. He says, no, not by you, but by them. In other words, you are justified in your stance here. I said, all we want is peace, and that's it. And he rolled up his window and drove off. Also present on the bridge were several highway patrolmen. And these highway patrolmen were... Uh, directing traffic, keeping you know, keeping the freeway moving a little bit, although it be very slow. And at some point, Eric Parker had gone down into the prone position on the bridge, 
and this was to protect himself against the BLM snipers and to be in a position where he can protect the people. Now, a high patrol was right there above him. High patrol could have put his gun to the back of Eric's head and pulled the trigger and been done with it, or at least arrested him. But Eric's feet was laying out into the lane of traffic across the yellow line. And the high patrol come up and said, hey, I'm worried about your legs getting run over. Tried to move them over a little bit type of deal. And so he was still trying to protect Eric while he was there protecting the people. I mean, the scene we have here, most people's interactions with law enforcement, most of that on a day-to-day basis is going to be highway patrol. Most people aren't a huge fan of highway patrol. And here you got federal agents, and look, I could go off on that whole thing, the BLM, but you've done a great job of explaining it. Taking a stance against the people, against the citizens, and here comes highway patrol, the, the same guy that if people just see him driving down the street, you know, they clench up and they start checking themselves, making sure everything's straight. And he's right there with you. And he's trying, he to, trying to help you out. It wasn't just one. There were several. In fact, I want to tell you about uh, Greg Burleson and Todd Engel. Um, they were also there on that bridge. And Greg Burleson, uh, when it was all said and done, and after the BLM had left, he, he come up and was on, on there, and he got speaking with the high patrol, and he, and he told the high patrol, thank you. Thank you for being here. And the high patrol in turn said, no, thank you. Wow. Thank you for being here. And Todd Engel had a nice discussion and shared a water because he'd been out there. It had been hot, been dry. And so he gave one of the high patrolmen a drink of water. And again, they had a, a good conversation and were grateful that, that we were there. It's a beautiful picture of the unity of the state, the people of the state, really. Yeah. And so that's truly what went on. You know, when we come down to the trials, and, and it's amazing to see the lies and the manipulations, and the, it, it's just terrible because one of those high patrolmen then got on the stand and flat out lied and said that the, the only reason he didn't do anything was because he was scared of all the people and all the guns, and, and it's their policy to just play along. Well, that's not what was taking place. We could see it in the videos. And yet, that's what he said on the stand to help get convictions of mm. these men. Wow. Now, Greg Burleson and Todd Engel were both convicted, wrongfully convicted, because they did no harm, and they were not there to do, commit a crime, and they did not commit a crime. But because of these false testimonies and, and lies and manipulations by the, by the courts and the, and the prosecutors, these two men were convicted, and Greg Burleson was sentenced to 68 years in prison, and um, Todd Engel to 14. And yet there is no victim. There is no harm. You know, let me tell you about who they call victims. They say, oh, well, these BLM agents that they, that they were down there, they're the victims. Oh, they're going to... They're going to have PSTD, you know, and they're going to, it's going to bother them the rest of their lives because of this. Well, let me tell you, we, again, through uh, discovery and the court case, we were able to listen to their radio communications and their body cams and their dash cams and so forth. And they were all eager to kill. In fact, when they were driving out, one BLM guy says he was frustrated. He's like, all effing mouth. Not one shot fired. 
just a bunch of effing talk. Wow. He goes, we should have sh- killed them all. Wow. Okay. He was disappointed he did not get to engage. Yeah. Okay. During, while they were down under there, you know, they were making fun of the protesters. They're like, oh, look at that fat woman. Oh, there's another one. She's so ugly. She must not be married. You know, they had no respect for the people and they were eager, eager to, to engage. And so, you know, we want to call them victims. The court want to call them victims. They were the one who were attacking us on our home ground. This is where we lived. This was our home. This is where we have rights. And they come and point guns at us and kill our cattle and destroy our water infrastructure. And they're the victims? Yeah. you got to be kidding me. Okay? Greg Burleson and Todd Engel and Jerry DeLumis and Eric Parker and Scott Drexler and many others, these men are heroes. They are not criminals. And they need to be given medals of honor instead of prosecutions and sentences. Mm. Now, let me tell you about where I was. Because I was, uh, I first of all showed up and I helped direct traffic Help try to keep a little order on the interstate. Again, it was shut clear down, but we got it moving just a little bit. Uh, a lot of people were getting off and parking. But then I did go down on top of the bridge for a moment to see what was going on. And I did hear and I did witness that the BLM said that they would shoot with lethal force. They threatened to kill us. I went back up to the top where the there was a crossing in the median and the sheriff's deputies had lined up between the median. And so I walked up to that line, and uh, Deputy Jenkins approached me, and I told him, there is about to be a firefight down there. And your people, speaking of the people on the ground, the, the citizens and people of Clark County and, and the visitors thereof, your people, are you know their, their blood's about to be spilt. Did you have that feeling? Did you think it was really going to go down? Yeah, I did. You know, at one point when I was down over the ridge, you know, um, one of the men with guns, he said, it's going to go hot, it's going hot, it's going hot. And I said, just calm down. I said, don't fire unless fired upon. And, And, you know, just be calm. And then on the other end, we have the BLM, over the loudspeaker saying that they will shoot, they will use lethal force. And so the stage was set. They had threatened us. They had told us they were going to kill us. How would I expect that they wouldn't? Yeah. Okay. And so I go up there and I inform this deputy that it's, it's just a hair trigger away and that there's going to be blood spilt down there. And I said, I need to speak to the sheriff right now. But I had known, or assumed, that the sheriff had left, probably to go down hide under his desk in Vegas. <laughs> but I said, so I need to speak to whoever's in charge here now. It was actually Joseph Lombardo that came up, who is currently the sheriff in, Los, in Clark County now. But he was the deputy at that time. So Deputy Lombardo came over. And I uh, walked across the street with Lombardo, and we went to address uh, the BLM. And, you know, back to when I was went up to the line, they say, oh, you can't protest here. 
And I said, I'm not here to protest. I'm here to do business. And uh, so then when I was in Lombardo, uh, we went over to the, the gates of the compound where the BLM compound was set up. And um, uh, I did not know what was going on underneath the bridge. I couldn't be in two places at the same time. I didn't know what was going on down there. Um, what was going on down there, though, was there was uh, uh, Sheriff's Deputy Roberts was down there. And my brother and the others had worked their way up to the gate and were speaking with Roberts. Now, my brother properly would not acknowledge any authority by the BLM's special agent in charge. And But he said, I will listen to and give authority to Sheriff Roberts as long as he upholds the rights. So that's what was going on down underneath. I, on top, um, was trying to still bring a stop to this bloodbath that was pending. And so back and forth with some radio communications, um, we finally got a stop to everything. Wow. And the BLM backed off and pulled out, and it was agreed that they would completely leave the compound within 30 minutes. And so they rushed to pack all their gear, and they did. They pulled out in a, in a large convoy, and there was, do um, you remember how many vehicles? <laughs> <laughs> I think there was like 114 vehicles that pulled out. And um, 114 vehicles? Yeah, and they all left. B all BLM vehicles? All BLM vehicles. Oh, my gosh. And they left a whole bunch of vehicles behind. And they had sent the contract cowboys out the back way, so they had already left the other direction. And, uh, and so now that the BLM and the compound was emptied, then the sheriff's uh, deputies escorted the horsemen up to the corrals and released the cattle, brought them back down underneath the Toquap Bridge and back down on the Virgin River which they were always on our ranch. They never did leave the ranch, but uh, took them out of their corrals, put it that way. Yeah. So it seems like a happy ending. It certainly was that day. Yeah. And people were joyful, and it was a good ending. You know, the sheriff's deputies uh, presumably stood up and brought a stop to what the BLM was doing. The high patrols, you know, uh, worked with us, and, uh, and the BLM left. What we didn't know, however, though, was that the BLM had a design to either, one, engage us and have reason to kill us, which now that had failed, and then their second design was is to set the stage to where they could prosecute us and place us in prison for the rest of our lives. Mm. And they had tried to do this through that process by getting my father to, say, open the gate and let the cattle out, pull the pin, as they said. Mm. Interesting. And they wanted to make sure that he pulled the pin so that then he could be prosecuted for releasing the cattle. But it didn't work out that way either because some old women went and pulled the pin. <laughs> okay. And so that kind of fell on them. But, you know, they did come back two years later. We didn't hear anything from them for two years. Really? So he got to sit. On this, uh, on this good day for two years. Yes. At least. In fact, you know, it was, it was uh, stated by some that, you know, that area that we were at, the Bundy Ranch, because the BLM was gone, that it was 
the freest place in America. Wow. <laughs> it was the freest place in America for two years. Now, in 2015, we started to hear about another ranching family that was incurring similar abuses, and this was the Hammond family, where Dwight and Stephen Hammond up in Oregon were being accused of acts of terrorism, and they were charged and prosecuted underneath the Anti-Terrorism and Effective Death Penalty Act. That's a bold claim. Yes, it is. Okay. Why was that? Why? Yeah, okay. Now let me tell you a little bit about that act. That act was enacted after the Oklahoma City bombing. And it was designed to prevent a similar thing as a bombing of a federal property. Or arson, or similar type destruction. It was never designed to be used on ordinary American people, but on somebody, you know, doing an act of terrorism. Now, the Hammonds owned a ranch in southeast Oregon. And on their ranch, you know, they have a lot of brush that grows up and becomes decadent. And it is a common custom, culture, and practice to be able to do controlled burns from time to time to knock down the old forage, which allows for new growth. It is a range improvement. You know, uh, Native Americans for thousands of years used it before us. And, you know, ranchers, since the beginning of America time here, we've used it. Even the Bureau of Land Management uses that. It's a common custom and culture and practice to burn an area because it grows back greener later. And so the Hammonds, first of all, they had a bunch of private property, but they also had grazing rights upon some of the, the public land. And so they, they burnt uh, an area of their private property, and the fire got over the fence a little bit onto some of the public land and burnt about 100 acres, which, by the way, is still a range improvement. There's no damage done. It's an improvement. And then another time, in separate fire, um, there had the BLM were actually out starting fires. And the fires were encroaching upon the Hammonds, property and threatening their home and their corrals. And so as a fire suppression method to use a backburn, they started some fire on their own property again to backburn and stop their the BLM fire. But that fire also went off their private property and burned one acre. But it stopped the oncoming fire. So I'm not sure how they can say which fire burnt which. I mean, it was all burnt. You know, they met in the point. middle at some they point. Met in the middle at some point. Mm -hmm. But because of these two fires, the federal prosecutors prosecuted the Hammonds as domestic terrorists and under the Effective Death Penalty Act. My gosh. Okay. Now let me give you a little reason why this was Seems back up a little bit. BLM just takes it to 11 every time. Yeah, they do. Yeah. 
Now let me let me back up a little bit because there is a federal code which talks about burning and um, even arson that's not under the effective death penalty act. Okay, but a rancher is exempt from prosecution under that code for controlled burns. In other words, they can't prosecute a rancher for doing a controlled burn on his range. They can't. Okay? But the feds didn't use that code. You know, they went after them as domestic terrorists under this auspice that they were terrorists, similar to the bombing of the Oklahoma City building. And there's some very specific terms that define the legal definition of a terrorist, which is using violence or, um, I forget the exact words, violence or fear or intimidation, I think is the word, for political reasons. You know, it's, it's a pretty political term. You're trying to make a political statement. You're trying to do something like that. And well, which doesn't seem like what the ranchers would be doing, setting fire to things to make a point. No, it's not what was taking place. So, you know, you think about terrorism, the word, the term terror, what is terror? Terror is extreme fear. So terrorism would be using extreme fear to obtain your position or whatever, politically or otherwise, I guess. And so when we talk about like the BLM, the government, you know, coming down upon my family or the Hammonds otherwise with the type of force we've been talking about, who's the terrorist here? Right. Who's the terrorist here? The federal government are the terrorists, and their agents are terrorists. Anyway, back to the Hammonds. Let me talk about the Hammond Ranch a little bit. The Hammond Ranch is situated in an area that is surrounded by what is known as the Malheur National Wildlife Refuge. And the Malheur National Wildlife Refuge has grown and grown and grown over the years. And they have grown by destroying the ranches that were in the area. I talked to an old man there in Harney County, and he said, you know, this, uh, this area used to be the jewel of the county. And because the wildlife refuge has taken it over and mismanaged it, now it's just become the biggest weed patch in the country. But it's about control, and the Malheur keeps growing. And they keep growing by destroying ranches, and they have destroyed over 100 ranches to make up the Malheur National Wildlife Refuge. Wow. But the Hammonds wouldn't sell, and they wouldn't be forced off, and they've stood strong enough that, that they haven't been able to do it. And this is an angst to those who want the Malheur to grow. And so they resort to using criminal prosecution to gain advantage over the ranching family, where no crime has been committed, and yet they use criminal prosecutions to try to destroy them. And by the way, we're talking about a prosecution that's taking place 15 years after the fires. Oh, wow. Okay, so it wasn't like these were recent fires. Yeah. I mean, any evidence that the fires even happened would have been long gone and probably been time to burn it again. Right. Okay? A good fire once every, you know, 10, 15 years is, is due. Of course, there was no damage done. And, I mean, it was just rangeland. It, just, it was just an improvement. So there was no cost. That's the other thing. You know, BLM, firefighters or anything, no one was called out. The, the fires were all put out, either naturally or, or by the hands of the Hammonds. It wasn't like there was any expense involved. This was simply a vendetta that the 
Wildlife Refuge had against the Hammonds trying to obtain ownership of their ranch. And so, again, because of the unfair trial practices, because they do not, won't allow all the evidence to come in, because of false testimony and, and false witnesses, they obtained a conviction against the Hammonds. And that sentence carries a mandatory minimum prison sentence of five years. But the judge at the time said to apply such a, a sentence would shock the conscience. And the Hammonds, no way were going to spend that much time. So the judge sentenced them to lesser terms. He sentenced one of them to eight months, I think, and the other one to like six months or something like that. Sorry, one of them was one year, and the other one was, uh, I think, uh, eight months. So they both served the sentences and were home. But the Malheur still did not have their ranch. And so now the people at the Malheur press the issue and say, wait a second, they didn't spend the mandatory minimum. The judge that had sentenced them was now retired, and so the prosecuting attorneys took the issue to the new judge, and the new judge said, okay, we're going to resentence them and make them spend the duration of the five years. Is that even legal? Well, that's a double jeopardy. Yeah. That's a resentencing. They weren't guilty of the crime to begin with. The wrong codes were applied to the situation. They weren't terrorists and worthy of a death penalty or even a minimum of a five-year sentence. They had done no harm. There was no victim. This was all a malicious prosecution to try to destroy their property rights and to get them off. Basically as a land grab from the feds. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. And so the judge resentenced them. Now, again, we started to hear about this and said, wait a second, there's an injustice going on here. And so uh, my brother Ammon began to investigate all the details. He went over to the Hammond Ranch and he visited with the Hammonds. He looked into their court documents. He looked into all the background. He looked into their rights. He looked into the history of the Malheur. He started to see the pattern of what's been taking place. He started to see the problems. And he said, wait a second here. And so others were starting to join in trying to figure out what was going on here. And, and we could see there was a problem. And so he said, we need to create a petition for redress and grievance, which is, by the way, a right and a process underneath the First Amendment. Read it. If you haven't read the First Amendment for a while, go read it. And find out and understand what a redress of grievance is. A grievance is a problem. It's causing us grief. And redress is a method to find a solution to that problem. Yeah, and it's the right as uh, you know American citizens to bring that up and present it to the government and have them address it. That's right. And so that so we built this petition for redress of grievance, and the petition was basically this. We can see there's a problem here. There's malicious activity going on here. There's things that are not right with this. And we want our county elected officials, our state elected officials, to put a stop to this, at least put a hold on it, and let's have a good look at it before these men are sent back to prison. So this petition of redress of grievance went to the county sheriff in Harney County. It went to the county commissioners, it went to 
the state legislatures in Oregon and to the governor in Oregon, and they completely ignored it. And we didn't find out until later. Again, there's a lot of stuff we found out later. FBI was already involved, and they had instructed those elected officials not to respond. There's a huge problem there, too. Now we have one branch of government interfering with the, the rights and responsibilities and duties of another branch of government. Yeah, and by extension, that was just a straight-up order to ignore the First Amendment. Exactly. Wow. Okay. And so because it was ignored, and because we had done everything that we possibly could do to bring justice and a semblance of our rights for the Hammonds, it was all being ignored, then more extreme measures had to take place. And so it was said that a hard stand needed to be made. And so we went to the Malheur National Wildlife Refuge and we occupied it. And we were using adverse possession laws to repossess that land. And we're going to return it back to the people of Hardy County. We renamed it the Harney County Resource Center and we begin to give seminars and classes to the locals about their constitutional rights. Now, when you say you occupied, are you saying you're in the national forest or whatever it is? Wildlife refuge. Proper, wildlife refuge. You're in there proper or in the, the Hammond Ranch area? No, we were... We were at the at the headquarters of the wildlife refuge. Oh, some actual structures then. Oh yes. Oh wow, yeah. Yeah. So when we were there That's for, a hard stance, brother. It was a hard stance <laughs> and it needed to take place. Yeah. And it was proper and it was right. Mm -hmm. Okay, because we would have liked it had they said, Oh, you're trespassing. Charge us with trespassing. That would have been great, because then we could have gone through the legalities of constitutional land transfers and prove that they do not have a right to own that property, that that wildlife refuge is unconstitutional. Right. Okay. And, and that's the other thing. We were in communication with the FBI at this time because they moved into, uh, and by the way, that refuge is 30 miles out of town. We pose no threat to anybody. But the FBI moved into town, and they shut the town down. They barricaded the courthouse, and they shut down the school, and they barricaded this, and they barricaded that, and they took over the airport, and they made a military base out of the airport, and they were all, you know, gunning for a fight. In the meantime, we were teaching classes. <laughs> okay. They shut down the school, so where do you think the school kids went? Well, we had a bunch of them come out to visit us. We had school kids there. Even elementary school kids there would come with their parents to see what was going on. And other local people would come to see what was going on. And uh, again, we were teaching seminars when they would come. And it was a very good feeling and peaceful feeling out there. In fact, the, the locals that, that came said, we feel safer here than we do in town. Wow, that's incredible. I mean... Yeah, I mean, it's a beautiful picture of getting together and making things work without the government. Exactly. But, you know, the mainstream media, they would not tell the truth. 
we would tell, you know, they were there and they would be down inside the refuge with us and they would walk around with us all day. And then when the evening news would come out, they would talk about how dangerous we were and the guns and, you know, we're gunning. They were just trying to egg a fight on. And then you got the, you know, the FBI and the feds, they're in town scaring everybody and trying to tell everybody how dangerous and everything was going on. And they actually put men out posing as militiamen. Mm. Scaring people. A little bit of a psychological operation there. Yeah. So they were trying to, to you know, you know, special ops or, you know, secret ops people, agent provocateurs. Yeah. They're trying to provoke the people into, into fear and, and to hatred against us. They were trying to demonize us. In fact, if you, if you recognize what takes place, this, this happened at Waco too, by the way. They try to isolate you demonize you and then destroy you okay and the demonization is an important factor because by demonizing then they gain the sympathy of the people and therefore their your destruction is then justified in their eyes and so this is what was taking place and this is why they needed to use their secret agents to act as though they were part of our group to go and do devious things so they could demonize us when we weren't involved with any of those activities. Uh, one of the things they did was uh, uh, there was the local armory there, the county armory, and they had FBI agents posed as us going and trying to break into that armory. Wow. I, again, old move, feds. And they were caught red-handed, by the way. By well, of course they would By be. the local fire chief, <laughs> <laughs> who was sympathetic to us and, and still is a good friend of ours. Yeah, so they had agents posing as you, well, Our sy group, sympathetic yeah. Yeah, to your group, breaking into an armory, which they would have had access to anyways, and the, the, the fly in the ointment was the old fire chief. Yep. Wow. I love it. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, he was the active fire chief. It wasn't like he was passed. And, and because this type of thing was taking place, uh, I mean, he, he resigned his position. Oh, really? Yeah. Wow. But anyway, uh, you know, we were speaking with the, B uh, with the FBI and were expressing the problems. Said so there needs to be a resolution to these problems. And they began to say, okay, well, we'll look at these, you know. But what they were doing is they were just trying to create a false sense of security when they had no intention to look at these problems and really address the real problem at hand. All they had in mind was to destroy us. And so we were invited by the neighboring county sheriff to come and give a seminar in their county. And he had assembled about 400 people there. And we were en route to that seminar. And the FBI ambushed us en route in which they killed one of us, Lavoy Finnicum, and they shot me, and uh, and they then they captured captured us and incarcerated. So, so walk me through that story. I mean, you're in cars. You got a few cars. I'm mm -hmm. assuming yep. you got, and you're going to teach a class yep. in the next county mm -hmm. over. Yep. How many cars? How many were there? Well, 
in our little group, that. there was only two vehicles, but there had been previous vehicles go before, and I think there were still coming some behind. Okay, so you got a group going out there. Yep. You're in a car with a few people. You're driving down the road. Is yep. it during the day or during the evening? It's, uh, it's still daylight, but it's, you know, getting towards the later afternoon. And you're driving down the road, and what happens? Well, we we get up, you know, over a mountain pass, and, you know, it's snow on both sides, and we don't have cell service because of the area. And then they pull in behind us with, uh, you know, like 12 black vehicles, and, um, and then they have a roadblock up ahead. And anyway. They pincher you in, basically. More or less. I mean... And this is the other thing we found out. The drivers of one of the vehicles, who was supposed to be acting as a personal security for my brother, was actually one more of their special agents and had arranged all this and the location and the whole nine yards and set it up to have us ambushed. He was a mole, basically. Oh, yeah. A spy, a mole, secret agent. And so you come up on this roadblock, you got black SUVs, just like the movies, pulling up behind you. Yep, just like the movies. You know, on an action-packed movie, we were right in the middle of it, in real life. Of course, the vehicle with the other driver, with my brother in it, immediately stopped, because that was the plan. And then Lavoie, whom I was riding with, we didn't stop immediately, eventually did stop for a moment, but we didn't know who, who, the, who these people were. They were in un unmarked vehicles, they... They didn't announce themselves. They didn't come and approach the vehicle like a you know regular high patrol stop would. would. They they literally just pulled out their guns, had laser dots all over us, and and when we stopped, they immediately fired a shot. They you didn't even get out of the car. Or did, no, were, you didn't get a chance to get out of the car. They just no. fired upon the vehicle. Ryan Payne, who was with us, he stuck his hands out to show that they were empty, and he they fired a shot. I thought they shot him in the hand, but they must have missed. But in uh, heaven's sakes, we weren't going to get out of the car. We didn't know who these people were. Yeah. Okay. And so Lavoy informed them that hey, we are going to go meet the county sheriff, and that we're you know we're going to go. And so we drove away. So, the, of course, they fired some more shots at us as we pulled away. Were they yelling? Did you have, there's no communication? Yeah. They were just. Uh, yeah, there, yeah, we had two women in with us, too. There were five of us to begin with. Ryan Payne did get out at that first stop. I don't know why, but either way, he got out. So then we went down the road about a mile, and they had a roadblock around a blind corner. And they had a dead man stop roadblock, which I understand is illegal for law enforcement to use. What's that? Well, it's a, it's, it's a placement of their vehicles that will, and because of the road situation around the blind curve and so forth, ensures or almost guarantees that a man driver can't stop in time and that the way their vehicles are positioned, um, it's going to create a wreck and cause death. So they, they call it a dead man's stop. They were looking to have you crash. That's right. That's almost like an assassination attempt. Well, that's what it was. Okay, they had previously trimmed trees to where they could get clear shots. They had snipers in the trees in several locations. They had it set up to kill us. Kill point.
And of course, you know, if you hit the the roadblock, they can say on the nightly news that you tried to blast through the roadblock. Sure, that would give, you know, that would give. So what we tried to do, what Lavoie tried to do is actually go around the roadblock, which would have put him into the snowbank a bit, and he was trying to get around the back end of one of the vehicles. But one of the federales there must have been feared that he was going to hit the vehicle, and so he ran around behind the vehicle and got in the way of travel of Lavoie. And Lavoie could have just run him over and probably got around the roadblock and kept going. But Lavoie's a good man, and he turned away from that guy, saved that guy's life, but that put him into the snowbank and got stuck. Wow. Okay. So now Lavoie jumps out of the pickup truck because he's also interested in saving our lives to draw the fire away. Because, by the way, they were firing shots at us. Approaching the roadblock, they'd put several rounds into our vehicle already. <laughs> okay. And now that we were stopped, they were putting rounds into our vehicle. And by the way, that's when I got shot. About the time we hit the snowbank and, and stopped, they were putting rounds in the vehicle, and, and I got shot. Where'd you get shot? In the shoulder. Wow. Bullets still in you? Yeah. Anyway, Lavoie got out to draw fire away, and it wasn't only a couple minutes, and they killed him. And probably it was only a couple seconds, you know, it, was, it wasn't very long, 30 seconds maybe. And they killed Lavoie. And he had his hands up, and he was in the snow. He can't hardly walk because you got snow up to your waist. Not like he could have been a danger to anybody. And yet they shoot him in the back and kill him. And so then they began to fire shots, more shots at our vehicle, and then they started to shoot um, CS gas rounds at the vehicle, in, into our vehicle. And, um, man, that went on for several minutes. And you're just sitting in the car yeah. with a bleeding shoulder. Yeah, we're hunkered down, but we're uh, trying to stay out of line of their, of their shots, no doubt. Yeah. And if they had any sense to them, or if they had the desire, they could have just come right up and pulled you out of the car. Well, what right did they have to stop us to begin with? We had done no wrong. We had done no, committed no crime. Yeah. You know, there was no victim. They wanted you dead. We were, we were on the route to meet with the county sheriff of the neighboring county to give speeches at a seminar. Where's the crime here? There was none. Okay. They are the criminals. They are the terrorists. They are the ones that are using extreme fear and force to accomplish their design. Because of what we were teaching, we were teaching people about their constitutional rights and how rights are established and how rights are maintained. And they said, the virus is growing because more and more people were learning. You know, it was, it was interesting because we had been there for close to a month. And in that month's time, we had probably had, I don't know, 400 people come to visit the compound, you know, the wildlife refuge, and, and learn. And now we were going to the seminar, and there were going to be 400 people there that night. 
And we had two more seminars scheduled for the other county. This is the county just north of Harney County, which would have been Grant County. And then we also had two other seminars that very same week scheduled in Malheur County. And so within that, within the next few days, we were going to be teaching probably a thousand people. And so it was growing exponentially. We were getting more people listening and learning all the time. And so the, the Fed said, the virus is growing. It must be stopped. And so how did they stop it? They stopped it by an ambush and killing Lavoy and shooting me and arresting us and throwing us in prison. You gave a couple teasers earlier on in the conversation. And, you know, obviously our listeners are familiar with uh, the institution who's claiming to be the government now, not necessarily being the case. The de facto government. Right. And so there's some discussion to have around, you know, how they justify this to, to themselves, at least from the top down. And so, you know, we can get into that a little bit later. But this is the turning point where they finally seemingly get their man, or one of them. Well, a few of them. And well, they killed Lavoie and they arrested you know, my brother and I and several others, and then they went on a witch hunt to arrest as many others as they could. Yeah, and Shauna Cox. But they eventually arrested, I think, 19 in Oregon. 23, never mind. It was 19 down in Nevada, but uh, 23 up in Oregon. Wow. So they're clamping down. They're finally getting what they came for. Well, you know, they had been... Uh, in, in 2014, you know, they lost that battle, and so they're wanting revenge. And so this is where they were going to get it. They wanted us dead, and they were going to kill us either by the bullet of the gun or behind the still doors for the rest of our lives. One way or another, they wanted to take our lives. One way or the other, they wanted us out of the political scene. They don't want people to stand up for their rights. They want to have control, and they don't want anyone to say no to them. And that's not freedom. That's not America, folks. That sounds a whole lot like a communist country. Now, I want to hear the story continue with your time incarcerated. And this is the chance where you got to really learn a lot of the stuff behind the scenes that you didn't get the chance at the time when you were living through it. You know, when the court proceedings going through, you mentioned that that's when you got the chance to hear the radio chatter and learn really how expansive this whole operation had been. And I still didn't even learn it that first year incarcerated. I, you know, they, had, they held us in incarceration for nearly two years, and I really didn't get to learn that until the second year because while we were incarcerated in the Multnomah County Jail in Portland, Oregon, they wouldn't allow us to use any electronics. So we have all this discovery. I'm supposed to be preparing for uh, trial, and yet, they won't let me view it. Really? Yep. So, I basically operate, you know, prepare for trial without any of the discovery. Wow. And in one way, up there in Oregon, I really didn't need the discovery. I knew what took place there in, you know, at, at the events. And, but what I did need to learn was, you know, how to, you know, maneuver within the courts. But I learned very quickly that I didn't want an attorney. Mm. Um, because an attorney assumes your identity. 
an attorney then acts in your behalf. You only hire an attorney if you're incompetent to act on your own. Which is funny because in today's, at least culturally, the thought is, you know, you can't even, you shouldn't even be in a courtroom without an attorney. You're incompetent, you're incapable of going through the process. Well, you know, they, they avoid you not getting an attorney and hopefully a public defender. Well, they, they try to force one upon you. In fact, they forced one upon me to begin with. Andrew Bates, who self-proclaimed best attorney in all of the Oregon area, you know, Portland area. You sound doubtful. <laughs> what a loser. <laughs> I hope he hears this. <laughs> you know, the first thing I ask him is, you know, when was the last time you read the Constitution? I don't think he even knew what the Constitution was. He didn't have one. He was a flaming liberal, atheist, Democrat, environmentalist. I mean, and yet he's supposed to be representing me? I mean, oh my goodness. So we did go through to a few hearings with him, and I would, you know, I would nudge him in the ribs and say, hey, you got to get up and say this. Hey, you got to do that. You got to do this. No, no, just sit, let the other attorneys do that. You know, just sit and be quiet. You know, you know, there was about four times that he would not do a, what I said. And I said, wait a second here. You work for me. And he, you know, and he says, no, this is my case, and, and, and I'll run it the way I want to. And I'm like, whoa, whoa, wait a second here. It's my life on the line. You know, I says, I says you're fired. Yeah. And he went off on a, F and rage, and F and this, F and this, you F and F and F and F and F. Oh, that's real professional. Yeah. Well, and in the meantime, you know, he's just so excited to be involved in such a high-profile thing. He might be thinking this is going to make his career. Sure it is. Yeah. Well, and that's the other thing. You know, this is what I've I learned is that the the defense attorneys, particularly those assigned, you know, the public defenders, they are not interested in finding the truth and protecting and defending their clients. They're just an extension of the prosecutors to work a plea deal out. To smooth the process. Exactly. Yeah, cost the courts a little less money. Yep. Quicken the they process. They are not there to administer justice. They are not there to protect their clients. They are there to, to, to aid the prosecution in obtaining a conviction of their clients. That's all they do. Yeah. There's very, very few good defense attorneys. Yeah. Very few. Mm. And so we began the process and we were in jail for nine months before trial started. And then trial lasted for eight weeks. And um, of course I fired my attorney. I said, hey, I will be pro se. Then later, when I learned the difference between, you know, what pro se means, pro se is Latin for a professional sayer. In other words, I was going to be my own attorney. Yeah. Later, I learned that I needed to be sui juris, which means of my own right. Mm. And so I dropped pro se and I put in, you know, documentation that I'm not pro se and that I, I am here sui juris of my own right. Courts didn't like that. They want you to have, they want you to be represented. They want an they attorney. They want the capital letters. And they want the, they want the all, yes, they do. Okay. And so my documentation, my papers um, kept putting a kink in their process. 
And, uh, and that's the other thing. You know, I had a voice in the court now. You know, like any of the other defendants would get up, like my brother tried to several times, and the judge said, you know, you sit down and shut up. Mm. Well, why wouldn't my brother have a voice? Because he has an attorney which assumes his identity and speaks on his behalf. I don't let anyone speak on my behalf. I have my own voice. And I also knew that there was no way on earth that I can convey to an attorney that could then convey to a jury truthful matters. Okay, there, there's truth would be lost in translation. I knew that I had to be able to be able to speak and to be able to speak directly to the jury so they could hear me and that I could express truth of what truly took place and of the, the right and wrong of law and constitutional principles and so forth. And so there was no way I was going to allow an attorney. But I did not have an understanding how the court proceedings worked. And by the way, before I made that decision, I mean, there's, there's more to that. And I've, I've expressed this in previous opportunities to tell the story. But when I was arrested and placed in jail... And um, I was having the problems with this attorney that I didn't feel comfortable with him. There was actually another attorney who was of my same faith, was of my same political leanings, uh, who understood the Constitution. I liked him very much, and he was proposing to, to stand and, and represent me. And so I took the matter to prayer to ask my Father in Heaven what I should do. And uh, the answer came to get rid of my attorney. And that literally scared me to death to begin with. Mm -hmm. Because I, you know, these things I just expressed to you, I hadn't learned yet. Okay, I was still learning. And so I, uh, I, I'm like, ah, man, I, I don't know how to, to proceed through this court process. And the answer came that he says, I will show you how. And I will give you what to say the right time. So then I asked about the other attorney, the one that I kind of liked, but he wanted a whole bunch of money. He wanted a quarter of a million dollars to begin with, and that would just take me through trial and not through any appeal or anything else or any extension or whatever. And so the answer came, don't place yourself into financial bondage. Because that's what would have been. I would have been enslaved to a, you know, a quarter of a million dollar debt. He still would have been your master even today. That's right. Yeah. Okay. And so I said, okay. I didn't know how to proceed, but uh, I had faith in my Father in Heaven, and I had faith in the answer that I had received. And so I fired my attorney and told the other one that I was not going to hire him, and away I went on my own. He also, in answer to prayer, told me that he would send those who were willing to help for the right cause, for principles, not money. And people came. There were several that helped me. There was Dan Bailey. There was Julie Embry. There was David Strait. There was Rand Cadmus. There was Jeremy Baker. There were Rick Kerber. These people came and counseled with me in legal matters. And from them, I was able to learn how to proceed through the court process 
And, uh, and then, of course, I relied upon the Spirit of the Lord to give me utterance at the proper time. I placed my faith and trust in the direction that God had given me. And what else could I do? How could I go wrong? You yeah. know, and uh, put it this way, you know, my life was on the line. And that was the other thing. Of all the defendants, I was charged with more counts than anybody. I bet. Yeah. How many counts exactly? 23. Now, that was both cases together. Yeah. But 23 felony charges <laughs> against me. That's enough for a whole town to go to jail for life. Gotcha. Yeah. Mandatory minimum sentence, had I been convicted of them, would have uh, was well over 100 years. Yeah. I, I, I forget the, the exact, it was 120 years or something like that. And the maximums, had maximums been applied, it would have been into the 350-year range. <laughs> yeah. And many of those mandatory minimums, you know, would not have been able to be served consistently consecutively or uh, concurrently concurrently yeah they they were mandatory consecutive that's crazy so i would have been in prison for the rest of my life yeah i was not going to place my life in the hands of another mm -hmm. wasn't going to do it no this is do or die time this is do or die time that's right and so we went through you know i uh, the conditions in the jails were terrible the presumption of innocence was destroyed you know, our rights were violated. Speedy trial was violated. You know, there's not a single right that we were afforded from the Bill of Rights. You know, we as Americans, as I say, it's terrible. We think we're free. We think we have rights. What a crock. Yeah. We are so enslaved nowadays that it is, it is unreal. And yet America still says, oh, we're the land of the free, the home of the brave. Yeah. Okay. Where is that freedom? I didn't experience it. Where are those rights that are supposed to be guaranteed by the Bill of Rights? They don't exist. They were violated on every hand with me, and it's not. And we weren't unique. The courts are violating the rights of everybody they run through. I could spend a couple hours just on those if you wanted to. Well, and you know, I would like to go into it a little bit because this is uh, the type of thing we've had... Um, you know, a, a number of people come on and, and uh, mention this sort of thing. But as a refresher to the listeners, I mean, please go into it. Okay, so let's talk about, I'm going to go into the Sixth Amendment. Okay. <clears throat> and I'm going to just open it up here. And yeah. just By the way, listeners, there's uh, he's had a copy of what I assume is the Constitution in his front pocket the whole time. I got one of our founding fathers been staring at me from your front pocket this whole time. <laughs> so that's been nice. All right. That's George Washington. And this is a pocket copy of the Constitution and Bill of Rights and Declaration of Independence and a few other little things. You know, I find it very interesting because our founding fathers were setting up a new country and establishing a new government. And with all of that... And when you say new, not just new in age but a, a new type of government yeah something that had never been seen before that's right yeah this this type of government placed the the sovereignty the power the authority in the people it wasn't a king it wasn't an oligarchy it wasn't a you know monarchy or anything like that this was a republic 
and a republic that, that honors the rights of men. Now, they were so concerned, and, and again, I find this amazing, that they would be concerned about men who were accused of crimes. This tells me that they had either experienced or witnessed atrocities done against men who were accused of crimes by the British government. And they wanted to ensure that men who were accused of crimes had certain rights so that they weren't mistreated. Because men who are, and women, I'm using the, the royal plural human And that's beings, what I'm doing too. Right, sure. Mankind. As it is in the language. Um, is someone who's accused of a crime, as we're seeing today, in 2018 especially, just the accusation is as, as bad as a, as a conviction in a, a lot of ways. And part of what they were trying to set up here was, you know, a, a true defense against the, the court of public opinion and the, to put it bluntly, the assumption of guilt. Yes. So again, our founding fathers witnessed and or experienced these atrocities against, against men who are accused of crimes. And so they wanted to ensure that these things never happened in America again. And so they established the Bill of Rights, which are the first ten amendments to the Constitution. And if you read closely, you will discover that about half of them either directly or indirectly protect the rights of men accused of crimes. Okay, I find that fascinating, that they had such care and concern for that. I want to go into the Sixth Amendment particularly. It states that in all criminal prosecutions, the accused shall enjoy the right to a speedy and public trial by an impartial jury of the state and district wherein the crime shall have been committed. Okay, so first thing they mention is that the accused shall enjoy these rights. Okay, enjoy. I, lo I love that term. Okay. <laughs> Enjoy. You don't just get the rights. You're there to enjoy them, bask in these rights, because you ain't going to get them somewhere else. Okay. Now, first thing I want to point out is that these rights belong to the accused. They don't belong to the general public. They don't belong to anyone not being accused. They belong to the accused. They don't belong to Congress. They don't belong to the legislatures. They don't belong to the courts. They don't belong to the judge. They don't belong to the prosecution. They belong to the accused. And the first right that they mention is speedy trial. So how am I going to enjoy the right to a speedy trial? Okay? So let's look at this for a minute. If you accuse me of a crime, now I'm the accused, I have this right, and I want to go to trial right stinking now, well then you better be ready to go to trial right now. And if you don't have the evidence or the or the means put together, you, you, you can't convict me. Well, that's your bad. You shouldn't have accused me yet. Okay? And therefore, I can enjoy that right because now the trial's over and I've been done free. It also could be that you can't arrest me and imprison me for a long duration without going to trial because that's not an enjoyment. And so, therefore, I enjoy the right to go to trial quickly so that my life is not encumbered with this accusation 
that the stress of, of pending court proceedings or pending uh, jail or, or punishments because of this accusation, whether it be real or false or true or whatever, that I have the right to get this over with now so that I can get on with my life. That's why I'm supposed to be able to enjoy that. That's why the accused is supposed to be able to enjoy this right. That's just one. But this right has been hijacked. Congress hijacked it in creating the Speedy Trial Act, wherein they said, oh, a speedy trial is, must take place within 70 days of the accused being indicted. Well, 70 days? That's two and a half months almost. That's not very fast. That's not speedy. And then they went on to put all these exemptions in there that, oh, well, time can be exempted for this and time can be exempted for that to the point where a speedy trial doesn't exist. And I know men who were accused of crimes, placed in incarceration, and spent 10 years in prison before going to trial. And then when they finally get to trial, oh, they're not guilty. But guess what? Do they get the 10 years of their life back? I know another man who spent eight and a half years in prison, had never gone to trial, there was no determination to guilt, and yet he was an old man and he died. Yeah. He spent a life sentence without any determination of guilt. I know another man who was in there for 44 months. No determination of guilt. And we spent um, nearly two years. And there is another man, Schaefer Cox, who was arrested and wrongfully convicted and given sentences that were not right. Now, I could go down further here. The next thing is, is that this, uh, these trials are supposed to be a public trial. They're supposed to be by an impartial jury that belongs to the state, a jury of the state. This means that it can't be a federal jury. If you go back to Article 3 in the Constitution, you'll find out that the federal courts only have civil jurisdiction. They do not have jurisdiction to try a crime. And in the Sixth Amendment, it reaffirms that the trial of all crimes shall be in the state. Federal court constitutionally cannot try a criminal case. And yet, there we were, being tried in a criminal case in the federal court. Not in the state, but in a federal district. We have the right to be informed of the nature and cause of the accusations and to be confronted with the witnesses against him. And so, I demanded that I be confronted with the witnesses against me. In other words, I wanted to, to see the victim. There was no victim who could take the stand and witness and point to me across the room and verify that I had done him or her harm. And if there is no one who could claim that I had done them, them harm, then there is no crime. No harm, no crime. No victim, no crime. This is part of the reason that our founding fathers put these rights in here, so that we couldn't just be arbitrarily charged with things and yet there is no victim and there is no one who could witness against me in such a thing. I also have the right to a compulsory process for obtaining witnesses in my favor. And so this is what subpoenas are about. And so I could subpoena whomever I felt would be a witness in my favor. And yet the courts in these trials would prevent me from subpoenaing many people. They would limit our ability to have witnesses in our favor. An example of that being, you know, you weren't allowed to use electronics and you had all this electronic evidence to 
to look at and you weren't able to do it? Yeah, in the, in the case in Oregon, here's the other thing. Okay, you have the supposedly the presumption of innocence. In other words, that's supposed to be an age-old principle in America that you are innocent until proven guilty beyond a reasonable doubt. That's actually in the Fifth Amendment. Okay? And so if I'm innocent, then I should be treated as an innocent man. And I should have all the rights, privileges, and abilities as an innocent man. And, and here we got a court situation where you got the prosecutors, federal prosecutors, they've got a huge office, they've got all kinds of staff, put all this stuff together. And yet I'm sitting in a jail cell with, with nothing. I've got limited phone use, and I've got no computer. They won't even let me have a pencil, for heaven's sakes. Okay? We get these little two-inch golf pencils without a pencil sharpener that we have to chisel with our teeth to get sharp. And I'm supposed to be creating a defense. A legal defense, right. Against charges that would, you know, if convicted, would land me in prison for the rest of my life. And yet they say, oh, you're innocent. Yep, until proven guilty. And we're going to make darn sure that that happens. Because we're not going to give you an opportunity to present a proper defense. Right. They prevent me from giving witness or testimony, uh, you know, and, and then the worst of it is they bring in false testimony and false evidence. And so a fair trial is not taking place. The presumption of innocence is not taking place. Speedy trial is not taking place. A, a trial in the state is not taking place. A trial by a jury is not taking place. Okay? All of these rights are being violated. And then the last one listed in, in, in the Sixth Amendment is to have the assistance of counsel for his defense. So in other words, I have the right to counsel with whomever I want to counsel with to help me in my defense. But the courts want to interpret that as, oh, okay, you can have an attorney. Well, you know what? You don't have a right to an attorney. You might have the right to an attorney, but that's not the protected right. If you want to hire someone to assume your identity and speak in your behalf, well, then so be it. But that's not my counselor. I want someone to counsel with. I want someone who, you know, to, could give me advice and teach me along, and yet the courts would deny that to me. In fact, when I when I said I don't want an attorney, they're like, "Okay, so you're waiving the right to your, you know, to the assistance of counsel." No, I'm not waiving my right to the assistance of counsel. I'm going to exercise my right to assistance of counsel. And I'm going to have assistance that will counsel me. Uh uh so you want an attorney? No, I don't want an attorney. Anyway, there's there's like a mental block in the judge's brain. He can't get the idea that an attorney is not my counselor. And so they prevent me from meeting with anyone unless it's an attorney, you know, a bar, a part of their team, part of their program. I don't want anyone that works with them. I want my own counselors. And I have that right, and yet that right was denied to me. And uh, anyway... I had to counsel, you know, I, I, the uh, few other rights I'm supposed to have is, is to be able to speak with these counselors. In other words, they can't record or use my conversations. And yet I had to speak with these counselors of mine 
on recorded lines that I knew was being listened to by by all the my opposition. Yeah. And so, in other words, I had no strategies that they didn't know about, which is unfair trial practices. Yeah. We're all aware that, um, you know, in a lot of ways, rights are, you know, constitutional rights are avoided or circumvented or just plain ignored a lot in in many areas of life, including criminal trials. But every day we walk down the street, we can have constitutional rights ignored. And we've alluded to it a couple times, but you would think that uh, the institution in charge who essentially, albeit a long time ago and under different circumstances, came up with these rules, would want to enforce them. And yet we see no obligation in many cases by that institution to do so. Now, can you go a little bit into that? Into, uh, and you can take it whatever direction you want, but how are they not being held accountable for this? Swati Moss killed me a couple days ago. What? For sleeping in the desert in my pickup truck. And a SWAT team came and got you? Yeah. Well, they came, yeah. They, 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 they screamed that they were going to kill me. Ryan heard it right over the phone. I was talking to Ryan on the phone. SWAT team surrounded my vehicle and screamed at me with a fully automatic weapon pointed right at my head. What did they think they were you were doing? Me. Cooking meth out there or something? I'm just telling you, yeah. when you talk about constitutional rights being violated, when they threaten your life for sleeping in the desert, you know there's something wrong. Yeah. Ryan, you can talk about that a little bit. Yeah, I was a witness to that. I, I hope you were able to hear that over your, your mic there. But uh, Why don't um, you recap a second, just in case. I think we got it, but we'll okay. tell so, us what you just said. So Carl Keoniggs has a truck with a sleeper on it, and he had parked to sleep the night at the edge of town, north Las Vegas. Had done no wrong. And encroached on nobody's private property and just slept the night there. But he wakes up in the morning with seven North Las Vegas patrol cars surrounding his truck and they had fully automatic weapons pointed at him and uh, screaming at him saying that they would kill him. Did you ever get a reason for this or? No, there was no reason. Well, we can't talk about the right to travel. They claimed, they said that I didn't have a driver's license. Um, well, you you know you weren't driving; you were parked. You were I sleeping at the night. I mean, I mean, I, I what claim do they got? You know, I mean, we could go into the rights to travel, but uh, but you know, but even if he didn't have a driver's license, why was he attacked with fully automatic weapons under the threat of death, uh, waking him from his sleep? Mm-hmm. Right. I mean, so in other words, this kind of thing is happening more and more. And it, it's, it's got to stop. So, to my question, why is all this happening? Why are they, is, I mean, we talked about the thirst for power and the corruption that comes along with that. And, of course, you know, this all comes from the top down um, in any institution. And so, do you have a theory for that or... You know, I wish I knew. I mean, I, my theory would just be speculation, but it's simply that they want power, they want control, and that's just that. Yeah. I don't. I don't know what else it is. Okay. It's just. It's just a greed for power. Yeah. So 
then going back to the timeline we're working with here, you're in jail. You take this on on your own. You're, you're going through the process best you can. How does that resolve? Well, we, we did end up going to trial. Uh, we had about an eight-week trial. When it was all said and done, the jury uh, exonerated us from any, any guilt. And we went home. We didn't go home. That was the problem because now they wanted to have a trial in Nevada. We were held, being held on two different cases. And so I had just spent nearly, a, well, it was about 11 months in, in prison, in jail, incarceration, went through this lengthy trial, never afforded the presumption of innocence, was found not guilty. My innocence was, was, was verified through that court process. And yet, no, they still didn't let me go. I was to spend a whole other year in jail after, after that because they wanted to take us through another trial down in Nevada. Wow. And so I had learned a lot through the first trial, and so now the second trial, uh, that's, we got down to the other jail, and that's where we were able to use computers and so forth in the law library. Mm. That second year is where we started to, to study and learn, and I was able to see a lot more stuff going on. But um, that was also difficult because much of that time through that second year, I was held in solitary confinement. Wow. And so I was held in solitary confinement in part the first year also. Of the two years that I was incarcerated, about a year of it was in solitary confinement. Well, what was the reason for that? I thought you kind of had to be a dangerous man to be in solitary confinement. Well, that's the problem. There's a whole system within the jail where they'll throw you in jail in the jail, so to speak. Yeah. Okay. And if Double you don't jail. do exactly what they say, then they throw you in solitary confinement. And see, and I'm like, wait a second here. I'm innocent of any crime. Therefore, I cannot be punished. Oh, but they're going to apply their punishment anyway. I'm innocent of any crime, supposedly you know, innocent until proven guilty of any crime, and yet I'm sitting right next to a murderer who has a life sentence. He's here for punishment, but supposedly I'm not. Uh, there's something wrong here. Mm. Okay? You know, they say that I wasn't being punished. How can I be sitting here in jail right next to someone who is being punished, <laughs> and their time is punishment, yet my time is not? <laughs> Again, I, I hate to laugh, but you mix. It, it's really, I'm laughing out of complete terror, is what it is. Oh, this is America. This is freedom. Justice for all. Can't you feel the justice? Yeah. Can't you feel the rights being honored? Anyway, it, it, what's gone wrong with America? I don't know. What's gone wrong with the judicial system? Why are our rights not being honored? Why are men being captured and thrown in prison and held for years or even days without a determination of guilt? These are the reasons why I'm running for governor. These things I am going to put a stop to as governor because I will not allow it to take place any longer.
I will not allow our rights to be dishonored any longer. And there's nobody else to seem to be standing up for them. You know, again, this is why I have a problem with Adam Laxalt. He's the Attorney General for Nevada, for heaven's sakes. And yet, he's allowing this stuff to go on under his authority and control. Where is he? Why isn't he putting a stop to these things? Why do I have to come and do it? He wants to be governor, but he's already attorney general, and yet he's done nothing to prevent these things from taking place. The entire time I was incarcerated, he was the attorney general. He could have put a stop to it, and yet he didn't. Don't. He can't be trusted to uphold the rights of Nevadans. Mm. He's already proven himself a failure. What are we to do? What are we to do? Somebody else has to do the job. Somebody else has to do it. You know, so again, a matter of prayer when, you know, I eventually got out of all this. I eventually was found not guilty and was, was released from all charges. And yet some of us that were charged with us, again, through unfair trial practices, were convicted. And they're sitting in prison. And it's wrong. And so I kneel and pray and I ask my Father in Heaven, what can I do for these men? And not just for the men in our case, but for the many men and women in thousands of other cases who are, are similarly being treated and their rights are being violated. How can I put a stop to this? What can I do? I feel so small out here, so powerless, so unable to do anything. Oh, I could turn in some court documents and, and I could beg to the judge to, to, to see my side. Uh, B.S. These judges are, are not in favor of justice. So what can I do, I pray? And the answer came again, to run for governor. And from that position of ability, I will be able to protect the rights that belong to us. So you're running for governor of Nevada. And it, so it seems you've got the heart of America at the center of your campaign. The original intentions of what the founding fathers, the pioneer fathers, really the spirit of the, the soul of this country. And I'm curious, you know, Nevada, I, w I would say, is probably a great, great place to start and have that be the center of your campaign. And you'd hope that that would be enough to get you there. What's been the experience like? What's been the process? How's the reception been? And uh, how do you think the campaign's going so far? Everywhere I go, and most everybody I speak to, are just highly in favor of what I'm doing. It's amazing the support that I receive. Uh, thousands of people have, you know, pledged to vote for me. Verbally, some of them online, and once in a while I receive a little opposition. There's certainly some opposition out there, but the amount of support is amazing. What could somebody even have to push back against? Well, some people, you know, make false accusations as to I don't support this or that or you know I anyway they 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 political try to, issues political yeah political yeah. issues you know some say oh I'm going to split the vote between the Democrat and the Republican and I'm going to cause forbid. the Democrat to get in and and hey you know what it's up to the people let them vote. 
I give, I'm giving them a choice. I'm giving them an opportunity to end this madness peacefully. And if they vote for me and give me the ability to do so, then it'll end peacefully. Well, I'm going to have to address that. If, if you get in, it'll end peacefully. The, I'm assuming what you mean is the alternative will be whoever's in charge. If that doesn't happen, we're, in the long run, we're not going to like it. Well, you know, the BLM attacked us in 2014 with the military force. Why? By what authority? Okay, if that isn't addressed, it's going to happen again. Mm. Okay? It might be on our ranch. It might be on another. It might be the Hammonds. It might be you. Okay? If we don't get the balance of power balanced, then this imbalance of power is going to hurt people. And so, if we want peace in the country, then we better recognize what freedom is. And we better adhere to it. That's right. The Tenth Amendment makes it clear that any power not delegated to the Congress belongs to the state and her people. And that includes the spending. See, so again, by my position, as governor, I will have the ability to state nullify any unconstitutional acts mm. because that is the place of the state. That's the problem. The states have forgotten who they are. They have forgotten their place in this union. They have forgotten that this is a union of several states and the union members created the federal government and granted to them power, and I shouldn't say granted, it's, it's more of a vested mm -hmm. delegation because the government has no power and authority in and of themselves. They only have what we, the people, vest in them. We delegate to them. You know, I can speak to the fact that it, it seems like a lot of people just don't realize that part of it. You know, uh, as far as a general public perception, Especially with, you know, I'd say I can speak for the younger people. You know, there's sort of an assumption that the government exists and it's always existed and it's there and we got to deal with it in one way or another and try to make it through life without spending too much time behind bars. Um, so a lot of that really is education. And on top of that, a lot of people just don't care. They're busy doing their nine to five working at Best Buy trying to pay the bills and they don't have any investment in what's happening at some ranch somewhere they've never heard of. They don't have any investment in, you know, they don't even real. I mean, they may care about some desert tortoise, but they care about it because they've been told to care about it by, you know, people they trust or people, people they've been told they got to pay attention to. And so that's a, a big part of activating the power of the people. And, you know, we were talking about it, we teased it a little earlier, and I think we mentioned something about it here or there, where the word state, and I point this out to people, and most people don't have an answer for me, you know, the, the United States is unique in a lot of ways. One of the most upfront, unique ways that people, you know, may notice and not even give a second thought is the fact that our internal divisions, uh, borders, states, are states. 
Whereas Canada, provinces, other places, provinces, things like that. Nobody else calls them states. And I think what happens is the assumption is it's just chalked up to uh, cultural use of the English language. And there's nothing more than that. But we hinted at a little earlier that the, the word state is very specific and is different from the word province. And state is actually a very powerful word, more powerful than most people understand. Can you speak a little bit of that? Sure. I'm going to start out by showing you a few of the states of America. Uh, Canada is a state. Mexico is a state. Guatemala is a state. Great Britain is a state. Israel is a state. Okay, the, the term state denotes a defined geographical area that is politically organized. Okay, a lot of times we use the term country or nation. Well, a country is an area of land. It could be you know, the back country over there, or the, the back side of my ranch could be, you know, the, the Red Rock country, or, you going know, the gold, the yeah, we're going out to the country. We're going out to some land. Yeah. There, yeah. Okay. But, you know, when we, so a country is a geographical area. A nation, by definition, is a group of people with a common commonality. It might be a common custom and culture. It might be a common bloodline, a common, something that binds them together. That's the definition of a nation. A state is a country, because there's a geographical area there, that is politically organized, and within that, there is a group of people that may be one nation of people, may be several nations of people, but they might consider themselves all one nation because they are within that one state. Okay, so Canada is in America. Canada is a state. Now, Canada has divided its state into different provinces, but it's just one large state, one large country that is divided into provinces. America, on the other hand, is not one country. It's not one nation. Okay? It is a union of several states. And so therein is another definition, another term that's important, union. A union cannot be just one entity. There must be multiple things, at least two, to join a union. Like a, like a man and a woman, a marriage becomes two people that join together in a union. And one of the most recent examples of this, that those, you know, America is a few hundred years old. It's hard for us to fully grasp the... The, the gravity of this, but if you want a more recent example, a more politically, a more politically uh, inflammatory example, as far as the listeners of this show are concerned, you know, you have the United States of America, the a Union of States. Well, a recent example of an attempt at that would be the United, I'm sorry, the European Union. Yeah. So what you have the European Union trying to do at a very fundamental level, and there's a lot of things we could go into here, but of, on the very theoretical level, they're trying to emulate what the United States did, which is a little flattering. It's nice for Europe to try to copy what we're doing in some fundamental way, although a lot of people would agree that they might not be doing it as well. 
and uh, you know, the, in within the European Union, you have let's just, Italy, Germany, uh, formerly Great Britain, uh, France, things like that. Those are equivalent to Nevada, California, Arizona, things like that. At least in on a fundamental principle, is what they're trying to do. You're very correct there. In fact, Thank let you. me. Uh, just to, to further your example and to back back your position up there, let's talk about the Revolutionary War. Before the Declaration of Independence, we were colonies of Great Britain. So Great Britain would have been the state. By extension, we belong to the state of Great Britain, and we were just colonies, provinces, districts, extensions thereof of greater government. And yet our founding fathers said, no, we don't want to be this anymore. There's reasons why. They list those in the Declaration of Independence. And then they said, these colonies ought to be free and independent states. Okay, that's how it's said in the Declaration of Independence. And then from that point, they were never referred to as colonies again. Okay, that they had to prove themselves because Great Britain weren't willing to just let them go, but through the Revolutionary War and the, the winning of that war, now it was established that these, in fact, were free and independent states. And something to note, a subtlety there that you don't, a lot of people don't pay attention to is they are free and independent states and an official sort of union, there was a loose union just sort of in spirit happening there, but they were 13 individual, to put it in vernacular, people might be more accustomed to they were 13 individual countries sure in a, separate in and a, sovereign a loose union culturally and and of mm -hmm. one mind but and and you know so they did have intentions to unite and they did so first of all under the articles in the confederation and then later they improved that union through the constitution for the united states but let's back up again to the point where they were still separate and sovereign completely there was a peace treaty drawn up to bring an official end to the Revolutionary War, and that peace treaty was signed by 14 states. Hmm. So there were 13 original states. Who was the 14th state that would have signed that? It would have been Great Britain. You're right, perfectly. Okay, yeah. because that's who the war was with. The war was not between America and Great Britain. It was between... Virginia, New York, and Massachusetts, and so essentially you had Great Britain with thirteen opponents within the war. That is correct. Yeah, that's okay. a rough spot to be in. Oh, so this so this treaty had to be signed by every one of the participants. Now, the interesting thing about that, and, and this is why I love that peace treaty, is because it shows that at that point, each of the states individually was on equal footing in the station of the in the status of the world with Great Britain who was at that time the world's most military superpower and yet these countries these states were equal in the world get my american red blood fired up brother <laughs> <laughs> okay so now uh, a union was formed and why do we form unions because we have common goals and purposes and we do it for a benefit. Why does a man and woman get married? For common causes and purposes. They join their finances. They join their households. 
they join in a union for the creation and uh, you know of children and they become one in their union but they're two still two separate people mm-hmm. okay and these united states are similar we have joined a union we have formed this union for common causes and purposes um, and for you know our common defense and protection and all of that is listed in the preamble of the constitution that is why you know list the various reasons why we formed this union and yet we are still separate sovereign individual states that are members of the union and through originally or the the, the idea that seems so abstract to people now the original idea of coming into a union was not to form some 51st entity that to rule them all but to come together and empower common good and to empower the causes that are agreed upon within those states while keeping independence and sovereignty of individual states and here's something that I've been getting a little bit fired up recently, and I don't mean to get a little off track here, but just for the listeners, just to just to put this out there, I'm sure I'll go I'll go off on it on something separate here. But you know, as far as this goes, it's it's so sad recently how this idea of states' rights has become such a politicized, depending who you're listening to or watching, you know, states' rights has become such a politically right. Thing or a politically conservative conservative thing, and you know you have people who identify as politically left or liberal or however you want to say it, who are so against states' rights, and yet it's the freedom that comes with states' rights that has moved the progression of liberal agendas. I mean, you talk about LGBT rights, you talk about all of them whatever i mean i'm i should familiarize myself a little bit more with with those causes but just in the case of lgbt rights the only reason that those have even made it so far is because of the sovereignty of states to make those decisions federal decisions on this you know the politically left-leaning people want the the federal government to make all these big decisions and the federal government is so slow and, and ain't going to do anything. And it's the state's rights thing that has been able to progress those agendas. No matter what your political ideas are, if you're on the liberal left, you should be a huge fan of states' rights. If you're an LGBTQ person, you should be in favor of states' rights. It's been a huge empowerment of you know certain groups of people what no matter what side of the political spectrum you're on you should be a huge proponent of states rights either way and that's what gets me so fired up because there's no reason to attack this fundamental concept of our union in just because you don't like what one state's doing it's above party politics it's unfair to the united states of america to attack the concept of states rights um, just because you don't like what uh, Alabama's doing, you're totally on board for what Rhode Island's doing, and you need to remember that. States' mm-hmm. rights is a fundamental concept. 
you don't like how one state's doing it, then move to move. the state where you want to, okay? <laughs> and that gets people fired up and so offended, but that's the beautiful part about our <laughs> collection of states. Just go somewhere else. It's wonderful. Problem in America is that we've been, this last generation or maybe several generations, they've been not been taught what America really is. They haven't been taught about the union or the definition of a state. And we've been, we have been taught, which wrongfully, that this is one nation under God, one country, one, one union, you know, one. And, and that's just not true. Okay. And so if the states are truly not states, if we are just provinces, if the union is not a union, then it is an empire. Mm. Okay. Oof. You look at the definition of an empire versus like the union. Okay, if that if if it is what people have become accustomed to believe it is, one nation, whatever, then the name is wrong because union doesn't fit. It's the, neither it's do the, states. It's the empire of Washington D.C. Well, I say that if if that's the case, then the name needs to be changed to properly resemble what we are, which is the imperial provinces of America. Mm. Totally. Would, would you like that name? Mm, you know, the Imperial Provinces of America. Doesn't have a very good mouthfeel to me. No, it doesn't. Okay. It, it sounds more of totalitarianism. It sounds like everything that America isn't. And yet, that's what most people believe we are. They, they call it union, and yet the definition of union doesn't fit. But the definition of empire does. They call us states, and yet... They don't want state sovereignty or the states to be independent and separate. They want them to just be subdivisions of the empire, which would be provinces. So we need to change our name, if that's the case, to the Imperial Provinces of America, which I do not agree with. Although I would not be surprised to see a petition start going around for that <laughs> one of these days. Where were we? Well, we got through the trial in Oregon. We got started into the trial down in Nevada. We won the trial in, in Oregon. It would have been nice to be let free and go home. You know, I missed my wife. I missed my children. I'm supposed to be an innocent man, and yet I'm being a prisoner. Yeah. I'm not just a prisoner, but I'm a slave. I'm a slave because I'm not able to serve myself. I'm not able to serve my wife and my children. Who's making a living for them out there? I'll tell you what, there were, there were people in this country who took care of my wife and, and family. But I'm a lucky one. Most people who face such difficulties as I do, their families are left destitute out there. And that is another reason why our founding fathers said we are to enjoy these rights. Okay, slavery was supposedly abolished in America by the 13th Amendment, and yet if you read the 13th Amendment, it makes slavery legal. Because it says that, um, let me just read it real quick. It says, Neither slavery nor involuntary servitude shall exist within the United States nor any place subject to its jurisdiction, except as punishment for a crime whereof the party shall have been duly convicted. Wow. Right there. It's slavery is slavery is not legal except if they're guilty of a crime. Okay, and so America is, in these judicial system, is a process of turning people into slaves. And I can tell you that although I wasn't held for hard labor, I was a slave in this system. 
I was not able to serve myself, nor serve my family, nor serve my community, and therefore who was I serving? Well, the jail was getting about $40,000 a year for having me in there. You know, the judges and prosecutors, they're all being paid because they're of the process they're, they're putting me through. The, the bondsmen, and not just the bail bondsmen, but the bonds that are placed upon the court case are traded and sold by, by, back and forth on the New York Stock Exchange and the S&P 500. Okay, so a lot of people owning mutual funds are making money on me. A lot of people don't know about this kind of stuff. Yeah, actually, a little peek behind the curtain here. I came in earlier today and you were doing an interview with somebody else. And it seemed I walked in right as you were explaining that. And it was starting to blow my mind. So if you want to <laughs> summarize that real quick, I mean, it doesn't surprise me at all. But I don't want to get too far off track. But that was something I'd never heard before. Yeah, well, just know that that takes place. That uh, when 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 you are accused of a crime and you are indicted, you're given a case number. That case number is then traded on the stock exchange, and people buy and sell your case. And I don't know exactly how it works, but I know that there's a lot of money to be made. And and uh, and so again, this we become a slave to this trade. This is a slave trade this this judicial system mm. um, human trafficking slavery and slave trade is what this is all about yeah anyway there's a lot to be learned about that look into it you'll you'll find that i'm speaking the truth i don't know all i don't know every detail but i know it's taking place mm -hmm. and i know that the presumption of innocence you know that's supposed to be a, an age-old american principle and yet I was not treated as innocent. I was not given, afforded any rights that an innocent man has. I mean, if they were going to incarcerate me for, you know, to hold me over to, to a trial, and the only way they have a right to do that is if, they, if there's no possible way that they believe I would be present at trial. Mm -hmm. Okay, and that's, you know, I, I, can, I can go, I can go deep into that, by the way, because... I know all about the Bail Reform Act of 1966 and the and the Bail Reform Act that failed, by the way, and never got past Congress as an, uh, into an act. Um, the Bail Reform Act of eight, 1984. Basically, again, to get abstract and down to fundamental principles, the assumption of innocence is unprofitable. It is unprofitable. You know, I, you know, we, we talked about the amendments a little bit earlier, but I want I want to hit, touch upon the Eighth Amendment. It states that excessive bail shall not be required, nor excessive fines imposed, nor cruel or unusual punishment inflicted. So, during this whole court process, I was not given bail. No bail is the most excessive bail there is, mm. because it can never be met. Mm -hmm. In other words, they were going to hold me in violation of the Eighth Amendment. <clears throat> In, you know, the Eighth Amendment espouses the presumption of innocence. And when no bail is offered, then they assume that you're guilty. Yeah. Okay. Again, I wasn't supposed to be there for punishment, and yet I was there. You were in prison with n no hope of getting out. I mean, forget if they set, you know, a million dollar bail. $2 million bail. You know, at mm -hmm. least you know the price of your 
escape. Well, what, when, when, well, and here's the thing. When you talk about excessive bail shall not be required, when you read through the Bail Reform Act of 1966, which did pass and did become an act of Congress, pretty much everybody accused of a crime, except for those who were accused of a capital crime, in other words, a crime punishable by capital punishment, everybody got out of jail. Okay, An excessive bail is described as if they set the bell at 10 bucks and within 24 hours I can't come up with 10 bucks, then it's excessive. Mm. It doesn't matter what they came up with. Mm. And they have to lower it. If they lower it and set it at five bucks and I can't come up with five bucks in 24 hours, then it's excessive. Okay, so. They can't just say, oh, you got a bell for a million bucks, and oh, you can't meet that bell, so it's too bad, too sad, you sit here in jail. No, that's excessive bail. I can't meet that, and therefore it has to be lowered. Okay? Cruel and unusual punishment inflicted. Okay, first of all, one who's not guilty of crime is not subject to any punishment. And yet I was held away from my wife and my children and my abilities to do anything, that's cruel. My union with my wife is a union that was put together by God. And what God has put together, let not man put asunder. Is that not what the scriptures say? Amen. Okay, and yet here we have man, the courts, putting asunder my relationship with my wife. That's cruel. Mm -hmm. I was an innocent man. And yet... I couldn't make phone calls without being recorded. I couldn't use the computer. I couldn't go, I mean, back to the Bail Reform Act of 1966. Everybody arrested, accused of a crime, was to be released with the least restriction necessary to reasonably ensure their presence at trial. The least restrictive means necessary. Okay, so in other words, yeah, we're going to release you. There might be some restrictions. There might be some conditions, such as bail or other conditions, but you're going to be released. And to only reasonably ensure, not ironclad guarantee that you're going to be present, but just to reasonably ensure that you would be present at trial. That's how the Bail Reform Act of 1966 reads. And even someone who is accused of a capital crime, they can also be released from jail, but they add the element of, are they a danger to society, to a particular individual or to society as a whole? Okay, so now if they could be determined that no, there's not an immediate danger met here, then they could also be released pending trial because they're innocent until proven guilty. But was that being adhered to? No. And so my Eighth Amendment right was violated. And, and, and furthermore, when I, was, uh, when I declared that I was sui juris and that I'm not going to have an attorney, then the prosecutors are like, well, he can't have any special conditions then. In, uh, in other words, in preparing for my case and my trial. And I agreed to that. Okay, I don't want anything special. I want everything the prosecutor has. Special means different. 
Special means exceptional. So the prosecutor said, well, he can't have anything special. Okay, I don't want anything special. I want everything that the prosecutor has to prepare their case. I want my case. And I'm innocent, and I have a right to those things. I want a nice desk with a nice uh, padded chair. I want a computer with internet. I want a telephone, and I want uh, you know a uh, an office with a view. <laughs> I want a staff. I want you know. I want all these things. I at least wanted a pencil. <laughs> <laughs> at least a pencil sharpener. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, there was a time there where I was in there like a beaver chewing on the pencil to get enough graphite exposed to write, write stuff. And, uh, you know, occasionally I'd end up with a pen, but you about had to steal them to get one. And mm-hmm. then if they found it, you know, they then they'd throw you in the hole. Yeah. Okay. And yet, oh, I'm innocent, but I'm not, I can't have a pen. Really? You know, I'm innocent, but I can't, you know, I can't wear clothes. You know, I, they're going to put me in their little pink pajamas or whatever they got for two years. Anyway, it's yeah, atrocious. But good news, you're free now, and you're trying to do something about it. I am. I'm trying to protect my rights in the future, and I'm trying to protect the rights of all so that they don't have to go through what I went through. Mm-hmm. And um, the vote for this comes up in November. That's right. Right. What are you doing between now and then? Well, I am trying to put up signs. <laughs> <laughs> Not getting much of that done today. <laughs> but, uh, you know, I have a lot of presence on, you know, radio, on internet, uh, media, web page, um, a lot of different uh, ways that way. I've got mailers going out, and I've got... Uh, staff that works with me um my campaign staff making it happen we're we're doing all that we can do you know we're limited a little bit by money um and always you know by time but hey we're doing what we can to reach out to people yeah let them know now i think in total you and i have been talking for about three and a half hours and we've covered a lot and you've told your story to the best that time will allow is there something that we haven't been able to talk about that you wish you had the chance to? Well, there's lots of subjects we can expand upon, but um, I just want people to take the time to learn about who they are. Learn about what America is. Understand what freedom is. If you don't understand these things, you won't recognize when they're not taking place. You know, people believe that we are free and in a free country, and yet they're told what they can do and can't do almost constantly. You know, I remember when I was a kid in in elementary school, you know, someone would try to boss us around and we'd say, you can't tell me what to do. This is a free country. And nowadays what I hear, in fact, you already said it earlier today, is you're like, I wonder if I can get arrested for that. Okay? The mentality is changing from one of freedom to captivity. And so if you do not know and understand what freedom truly is, 
if you don't understand how that freedom is supposed to be protected, if you don't understand what our founding fathers put together for us, if you don't understand that Constitution for the United States and everything that led up to it, the Magna Carta, the the, the Federalist Papers, the Anti-Federalist Papers, the I mean, the, there's all kinds of things that our founding fathers studied to come up with the Constitution. They didn't, they didn't just come up with this out of the clear blue sky. They did their homework. They did their study. And they called upon the lessons learned from history. Now, if we don't do that same thing, if we are just a bunch of ignorant idiots out here because we don't know better, we can't expect to be free. We won't be free. We're losing our freedoms every day. Every time legislature's in session, they take more freedoms away. Our state legislatures and the federal legislature, federal Congress. And we don't even know it because we don't know what freedom is, because we don't know, we don't recognize it because we're so accustomed to just being told what to do. We are in slavery. A slave is told what to do. A slave asks permission. Free men don't ask permission. Okay? If you're free, you don't ask permission. You exercise your rights. You're also responsible with your rights. You care for other people. You do unto others that you would have others do unto you. Under captivity, you are told what to do and what not to do, and if you do something, then you're punished for it. That's slavery. And so I, my admonition is, is learn, learn, learn. Read and learn. And all of this comes from God Almighty. We are built upon eternal principles, Christian principles, values that transcend time and governments. These are natural law, that we respect one another, honor one another, and that we have right to be free given to us from God. And governments are there only to aid the individual in protecting those rights. That's it. If you don't learn these things on your own, if you don't own that information, then we're in trouble. So that's what I'd like to end with. Well, there you go, Gons. That was the second half of my conversation with Ryan Bundy, gubernatorial candidate for Nevada this coming election. Man, I just want to personally thank Ryan Bundy and his campaign people for allowing me the time to sit down and talk and really do a nice long form conversation about this. I, I didn't know 90% of that story. Yeah, no, it was very detailed. There's a lot going on. There's so much that can be discussed. Not, there's, there's no way we can cover it all in an outro. I know we're talking about what, how we could wrap this up, but the thing is there's so much to talk about there and so much to revisit that I think we're going to have to save it for a bonus episode. 
And if you want to start conversations of your own, you can head to facebook.com slash canarycrycommunity, where conversations about episodes and topics that we cover on this show, as well as some fun memes and just a good place to discover people just like you over at facebook.com slash canarycrycommunity. Go there, ask to join the group. We'll let you in and start some conversations with people just like you. And if you want to support this show financially, please head over to patreon.com slash canarycryradio. This show is exclusively supported by listeners. We philosophically disagree with the concept of selling advertising and therefore selling your attention that you're so uh, gracious enough to, to give to us and the stories that we want to tell. So if you want to support this show, support uh, the telling of stories just like Ryan Bundy's, please head to patreon.com slash canarycryradio and sign up at, uh, there's uh, many different levels that you can support with many different rewards. And so head over there. We got bonus content. We've got uh, merchandise, like custom made journals and stickers. Just go check it out and thank you in advance for your support. It's the only way we can continue doing this. Also, if you're unable to support the show financially, it is a huge help to leave ratings and reviews on iTunes, Stitcher, or whatever podcast player you're on. If you go there, leave a star rating and a review. It goes a long, long way to extending the reach of the show as well as the stories we want to be telling. Or if you want to vent, you can do that too. It's a place to also, vent. <laughs> it is certainly a good place to vent. If Gons isn't emailing you back, head over there, leave us a comment and let people know that Gons is bad at emailing you. Also, if you want more Canary Cry, check out our other show, Canary Cry News Talk, where Gons and I talk about the news of the day and put it in context of everything we talk about here on Canary Cry Radio. And do us a favor, go out there. If you have friends who don't listen to Canary Cry Radio or any of the other podcasts, let them know that this is what they need to be listening to. Go out there and rattle some cages. I want to shake things up, stir up some controversy, rattle a few cages. Hey, stop that. Don't ever silence me. I'm the last angry man, a crusader for the little guy. Leave the bird alone. Never. That's right. Go out, tell your friends if they're not already listening, tell them that Canary Cry Radio is the place to go. The bomb. And the bomb. And make sure to tune in next week. But until then, think outside the cage. Thank you.